Okay, you can open your Bibles up to John chapter 14 if you haven't already done so. Uh, If you have one of our Bibles, we'll be on page 957 this morning. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter, uh, verses 15 through 31. Up to this point in John's gospel, we've learned a lot about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus has constantly talked about how he was, he's been sent from the Father, how the words that he were given were given to him by the Father, how everything he does reflects the words of the Father, how he and the Father are one, right? Sprinkled throughout what we've read so far in John's gospel have been these glimpses of God the Holy Spirit. We've had God the Father, we've had God the Son, we've had these glimpses of God the Holy Spirit, and these glimpses have provided us with some vital information about the Spirit. One of those being in in chapter 6 that he says, the Spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all, right? We just, that's what Paul just said in Romans 8 when when we read that for our prayer time. Um, But these have only been glimpses up to this point because up to this point, Jesus himself has been with his disciples, right at their side, walking with them, teaching them everything that they need to know. He had been revealing who he was to them and what he had come to do for them and for all of his people. But when it was finally just Jesus and his disciples, these 11 in the upper room, suddenly Jesus hit them with this, with this bombshell of a statement. I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. And he knew that they would be devastated by this news, wouldn't you? Because they wouldn't understand it. They don't know why he was leaving them. And so he sought to comfort their troubled hearts by explaining to them that, hey, listen, I know this feels like, like it's abandonment, but my leaving will actually make it possible for us to be together forever. This is for your good. And today we'll be begin to see how the Holy Spirit helps with that. So as we work our way through John 14, verses 15 through 31 this morning, we, we will get more than a glimpse of the Holy Spirit, and we'll see why knowing and relying on this third person of the Trinity is just as important as knowing and relying on Jesus himself. I want to pray that God helps us by his Spirit to... Uh, to receive his word this morning as he speaks uh, his word through me. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are God. We're thankful that we can know you as Father, that we can know the Son as Savior, that we can know the, the Spirit personally and intimately as the indwelling presence of God. You have not left us. You have come to us. And so we pray now that that the spirit who lives in us would open our minds, our eyes, our hearts, our ears to humbly receive the the word as you uh, implant it into our hearts that we might know all the good things that we've been given in Christ through him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever tried to explain the Holy Spirit to somebody? If you had to explain the Holy Spirit to someone, what would you tell them? This, it, 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 is, is the Holy Spirit some, some mystical force? Is he a, a relational being? Is he, is he a, a power, right? Or is he a person? 
What role does the Holy Spirit play in the life of a follower of Christ? How can you tell if someone has been given the Holy Spirit? Some people would claim that, that a person doesn't have the Holy Spirit unless they speak in tongues. But in our passage today, Jesus will actually claim that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is evidenced in a different way, a, a, a far more normal way. Here's what we're going to see this morning, and this is the main point of the message. Those who love Jesus and keep his commands are those to whom he has given his Holy Spirit. Those who love Jesus and keep his commands are those to whom he has given his Holy Spirit. In our passage today, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit enables us to love Jesus and keep his commands by, number one, remaining with us and in us forever. Number two, making us his dwelling place, the dwelling place of the Father and the Son. And number three, by teaching us all things. And in the end, we're going to see that, that Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit in order to give us his peace. So let's dig in. We, we love Jesus and we keep his commands because the Holy Spirit remains with us and in us forever. Look at John 14, verses 15 through 17. If you love me, Jesus telling his disciples, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. And remember that this is a continuation of the conversation that was taking place in the upper room. Chapters 13 through 16 are essentially covering this, this uh, less than 24-hour period these last words of Jesus to his disciples before he's betrayed in the garden by Judas, arrested by the Jews, crucified by the Romans. He'd already shown his love for his disciples in this room by humbly washing their feet, and he had commanded them to love one another just as he had loved them. Here in verse 15, he, he told them, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Notice the language here, okay? Jesus did not say, if you love the idea of me. He did not say, if you love the stories about me that you learned in Sunday school. He didn't even say, if you love my commands. If you love my word. He said, if you love me. If you love me. Christ's disciples are to love Christ himself. He's the word made flesh. He's God incarnate. He's a person to be loved. Do you love him? Love for Jesus and obedience to him always go hand in hand. Jesus just linked those together for us. Obedience to Jesus is evidence of love for Jesus. But we shouldn't confuse obligation with affection. Obligation alone, we need to know this, is not enough to propel long-term obedience to Christ. Yes, you might be able to do a few things here or there that make, give the appearance of obedience, but eventually you're going to get tired and you're going to quit. 
Obligation alone is not enough to propel long-term obedience to Christ. Why? Because obligation is mostly focused on the commands of Christ and and our responsibility then to follow them. Affection, on the other hand, is more focused on the person of Christ and the privilege of knowing him, considering his love for us. Genuine obedience to Jesus is always propelled by genuine love for Jesus. Whatever or whoever has your greatest affection also has your greatest allegiance. You serve what you love. Do you love him? What have we seen people love so far in John's gospel? Well, we know they love darkness. We know that they love human praise more than praise from God. We know that they love their own glory. You serve what you love. Back in chapter 8, Jesus told the Jews that those who continue in his word, a.k.a. those who keep his commands, like he says here, these are the ones that really are his disciples. They would be marked by long-term obedience to him, propelled by genuine love for him. In the context here, not only had Jesus just told these 11 disciples to love one another as he loved them, but he also told them about the apostolic mission that they were to carry out after he was gone. You know what he was calling them to? Love and obedience. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And as he prepared them for his departure and for their subsequent earthly ministry after he was gone, he encouraged them to pray, and he told them, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You remember that from last week? Here in verse 16, Jesus essentially said, hey, you know what? I'm also going to ask the Father for something. I'm going to ask him for something, and he will do it, because what I'm asking for is for your good and his glory in me. Now, let's not be careful to rush past something here that that can really serve to encourage us and deepen this love and obedience that we are called to as disciples of Christ. He said, I will ask the Father, and he said, the Father will give. Did you know that the Father never says no to the Son? He never says no to the Son, and the Son never asks anything frivolous of the Father. Whenever Jesus asks the Father for something on behalf of his disciples, we ought to understand that as something that we absolutely need, that we cannot go or live without. I will ask the Father and he will give you the Spirit, the uh, the Spirit of truth, another counselor. And we ought to rejoice that because Jesus has requested it, that the Father will not withhold it from us, but instead he will freely and joyfully provide us with whatever it is that the Son has asked for. The New Testament reveals to us over and over again that these 11 disciples were not the only ones who would receive the Holy Spirit. They were the first ones. They weren't the only ones. The the promise that Jesus made to these 11 disciples here in verse 16, it's not just for them. It's ultimately for every disciple of Jesus from this moment on. And it's a promise that is only for disciples of Jesus. 
It's only for those who follow him, those who love him and obey his commands. The unbelieving world, Jesus says, is unable to receive the Holy Spirit because it doesn't see him or know him. Those who believe in Christ are those who receive the Spirit of Christ. John told us this back in chapter 7 after Jesus stood up at the festival of the shelters and, and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing from within him, from deep within him. He's talking about the spirit that would be poured out on all believers. Last week in verse 7, Jesus told the disciples, listen, if you know me, you know my father. And here he essentially told them, because you know me, you will know my spirit as well. That's because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one God in three persons. They're one in the same in essence and nature, fully God, but each person distinct in his role in creation and redemption and final consummation. Jesus called the Holy Spirit another counselor in verse 16. Your translation may say helper or advocate or comforter instead of counselor. These are all important words. They're all helpful words, but none of them fully captures what's, what's being said here. In the Greek, John uses this word, Jesus uses this word, paraclete. Maybe you've heard that before. It literally means one who is called alongside. Isn't that already encouraging to think about that? When you feel alone and someone suddenly comes up beside you and says, we got this. Let's go. one who's called alongside. Jesus had been alongside his disciples for the past three years, right? But he would soon be returning to the Father's side, where he belonged. And when that happened, the Spirit of truth would be called then to the disciples' side in order to strengthen and encourage them with the truth just as, as Jesus had been doing while he was with them. And Jesus reassured them that this counselor would be with them forever. Not only would the Holy Spirit remain with them, but he would be in them. Jesus was speaking of the new covenant fulfillment of an old covenant promise. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God's people failed to love and obey him miserably. Miserably. They failed to keep the covenant, to keep his commands that he had made with them. But in Jeremiah 31, God is not a God who gives up on his people. Do you know that? In Jeremiah 31, God promised to make a new covenant with them. He said, this time, hold on, this time, I will put my teaching within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and, and they will be my people. And in Ezekiel 36, he elaborated further. He said, I will remove, this is how I'm going to do it. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you, within you, and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances, to love me and to obey my commands. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit dwelt among God's people in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies between the cherubim at the 
mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. He was also in the leaders that God chose, empowering them for a specific task or role. But he was removed from those leaders anytime they turned away from the Lord. He wasn't guaranteed to stay. But this new covenant promise, guaranteed. Paul calls it a, a seal, a down payment, a guarantee. This new covenant promise guaranteed that the Holy Spirit would, would stay not only with, but in God's people forever. In us, with us, forever. Again, this promise isn't just for these 11 disciples, but for every disciple of Jesus, everyone who loves him and obeys his commands. That means that as followers of Christ, God has removed our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh, and he's placed his spirit of truth within us forever to enable us to do what he calls us to do, to love him and obey him. And that means, just as we sang in that first song this morning, we'll never be alone. We'll never be alone again. Because the spirit of truth remains with you and in you. Listen, you're not alone even if you live by yourself. You're not alone even if you're the only one in your family or your friends who is a follower of Jesus. You are not alone when you sit at the doctor's office waiting for these test results. You're not alone as you try to figure out what to do next after high school. You're not alone when you attempt to share the gospel with your coworker or your classmate or whoever. No matter what you face, no matter where you are, if you're a follower of Christ, you are never alone. Never. Because his Holy Spirit is with you and is in you forever. We could just pray and close right there. These 11 disciples were overwhelmed with fear and sorrow after Jesus told them that he was leaving them. They just couldn't get that out of their minds. Surely they were feeling a sense of abandonment as, as well, right? They needed to know, even as, as the reality in front of them was that Jesus himself was physically leaving them, they needed to know that he would not leave them alone. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus was reminding these little children, as he so affectionately called them, that he was not leaving them forever. They wouldn't be abandoned as orphans. They still didn't understand what, what, that, he, that he was about to die. And yet, Jesus essentially told them here, listen, after I rise from the dead, you will see me, but the world won't. And that's true. After his resurrection, Jesus only appeared to his disciples. He didn't appear to the world anymore. He didn't appear to unbelievers. He, he appeared to those of his disciples not only to reassure them that, that death would, did not win, which we'll see this as we get later into John's gospel, but he also revealed himself, showed himself to them 
in order that they would uh, understand that his resurrection secured their unity with him forever. Because I live, you will live too. Because I live, you will live too. Again, that's a reality. That's a promise that not only applies to these 11 disciples, but also to every disciple of Jesus. Why? He's the resurrection and the life, right? Everyone who lives and believes in him will never die forever because we are united with the risen King Jesus forever. And his spirit lives in us and is with us forever. Earlier in chapter 14, a confused Philip told Jesus, listen, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Right? Remember that? To which Jesus replied, listen, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Don't you believe that? Haven't I proved that by now? Here in verse 20, though, he says something very similar, but he, he adds something unexpected. He said, on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, which he's already said before, right? And then he says these two little phrases. You are in me, and I am in you. After the resurrection, Jesus would be united to all of his disciples, not just these 11, but all of his disciples just as he is united to the Father. Not only are we able to know that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, we actually get to participate in that union as those who are in Christ. And that's because his Holy Spirit remains with us and is in us forever. How incredible is that? And this indwelling spirit also makes us the dwelling place of the Father and the Son. Look at verses 21 through 24. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will also love him and, and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me... He will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who has sent me. Once again, Jesus coupled love and obedience together for his disciples in verse 21. But he wasn't telling them that they earned the Father's love and his love by their obedience. That's not what he meant when he said, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I also will love him. Essentially what he was telling them is that their relationship with him went far deeper than they could ever ask or imagine than they could ever realize. They wouldn't just be one with Christ forever. It wasn't just, you are in me and I am in you. Now it will be, you are in the Father and the Father is in you. They would be one with the Father forever because they were one with the Son forever. It's a tough break to have the same name as the man who betrayed Jesus, isn't it? Judas, not Iscariot, like you, you just have to qualify that every time. I heard one pastor say, it's like saying Hitler, not Adolf, right? Judas, not Iscariot, essentially asked Jesus, how, how come we get to see you? 
How come we will get to see you, but the world won't? Now, this Judas may not have betrayed Jesus, but he still had the, the wrong idea about him. Judas, not Iscariot, was thinking along the same lines as Jesus' brothers were back in chapter 7. They told Jesus, listen, no one does anything in secret if he's seeking public recognition. If you do these works, all these things that Jesus was doing, if you do these works, show yourself to the world. Show everybody who you are. None of the disciples in the upper room had yet fully grasped anything Jesus was saying about his crucifixion, his resurrection, or his Holy Spirit. They are in utter dismay. We can't lose sight of that. The other Gospels, we see Jesus telling them plainly that he's going to be crucified, handed over, died. They still didn't get it even when they heard it straight out. John's point here is that these guys are, are helpless without Jesus. And they think they're, they're losing him. So they feel even more helpless. And now he's comforting them with the promise of another comforter, of another counselor, of one who would come alongside them. None of them fully grasped anything he was saying here. They were still trying to wrap their minds around the fact that he was leaving. So Judas, not Iscariot, was probably wasn't the only one in the upper room who still was holding on to this idea that the Messiah was supposed to make a very public appearance as the triumphant political and military leader of Israel. He's going to overthrow Rome with a mighty sword. But Jesus, if you notice, didn't really even bother to answer Judas not Iscariot's question directly. Because in less than 24 hours, you know what they would see? They would see the Messiah's public appearance, not as, as, a, as a man on a horse with a sword, but a man on the cross, bloodied and naked, bearing the sins of the world and the wrath of the Father. Instead, Jesus redirected them once again to the bigger picture of their relationship with him. Listen, I know I'm leaving. It's for your good. It means we will be together forever. He said, look, there's a difference. This is essentially what he said. Judas, not Iscariot. There's a difference. There's a difference between you and the world. You will keep my commands because you love me, but the world won't keep my commands because it hates me. And now we hear the words of Paul in Romans 8 echoing, right? The one who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. He's hostile to God. He cannot please God. Jesus told them, because my commands aren't my own, but they come from the Father, the world that rejects me rejects the Father and, he, and has nothing to do with them. And because you are my disciples, you will not only get my Holy Spirit, but you will get me and the Father too. Jesus had already promised to prepare a place for uh, his disciples in his Father's house. You remember that? If I go away, I'll come back again, and here's why I'm going away. I'm going away to, to prepare a place for you. Now he was promising that his indwelling spirit would prepare his disciples as a place, as a home for the Father and the Son. This promise, again, wasn't just for the 11 disciples in the upper room. It's for every disciple of Jesus, for everyone who loves and obeys him. And it's an incredible promise. It means that 
by God's grace, we have the privilege and the joy of sharing in this perfect, loving union that has existed between the Father, Son, and the Spirit for all eternity. And it means that we don't have to wait until we go to God in order to experience it because God has come to us. We get to enjoy that perfect, loving union with Him right now because the Holy Spirit has made us the new temple where the triune God dwells. One of the tangible ways that we enjoy that perfect loving union is through fellowship with one another. Why? Because we share the same Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's one Spirit, one Lord, one faith. We don't prioritize our relationships with one another or the Sunday gathering out of obligation. We prioritize these things out of affection for one another, godly affection for one another, godly affection for God, for the one who lives in us. Because we share in the mutual affection that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for each other. Listen, what else has the ability to rouse our hearts the way God's word does when we can open it together? and be encouraged and remind one another yet again of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What else can rouse our hearts that way? It's true that we experience this perfect loving union now only in part. In Ephesians 4, Paul has to tell them also to to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Why? Because there's conflict among God's people. Yes, we experience this loving union now only in part, and one day we will experience it in full. But even so, we can always be sure of this thing, this one thing right here. We will never lose that fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit because the triune God has made his home in us. I've had eight homes in my lifetime count it. And at some point in my life, for various reasons, it was time to pack up and move out of that home and into the new home. You need to understand this, though. We need to understand this. When God moves in and makes you his home, that's for good. He never moves out. Aren't you thankful? He never moves out. Why? He's promised to be with us and in us forever. And God does not break a promise. We couldn't trust him otherwise. It's something that we need to be constantly reminded of, right? We're in luck because the Holy Spirit also teaches us all things. Look at verses 25 and 26. I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. You ever crammed all night long for a really big exam the next morning? The information overload makes it hard for you to keep things straight, right? Your mind gets overworked and your body gets underrested. And as soon as the exam's placed in front of you, it's like you were reading blank pages all night long. Can't keep anything straight. You forget everything. This, this, uh, anxiety wells up within you and you feel like everything is, is, 
going down the drain. For three years, Jesus had been teaching these disciples things that were hard for them to understand. Three years, they're getting all this, this information that was meant to be, uh, 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 to be used for transformation, and they, they just can't wrap their minds around it. Things that confused them and left them with more questions than answers. Now, on the night before Jesus was crucified, in his final words to the disciples in the upper room, they were confronted with the reality that they, not only with the reality that they still had so much to learn, but they were also still struggling with this reality to grasp this news of Christ's imminent departure. This is like new information. Things they haven't really paid attention to before. Yes, they're sprinkled in throughout John's gospel. But now as Jesus is about to leave, he's, he's unloading like this fire hose of information about the Holy Spirit. And they're freaking out because they, all they know is that he's leaving. How will we learn all that we need to know, let alone remember all that we've learned? This, is, this has got to be what's, what's floating around in their minds. And yes, why? Because their teacher is leaving. He's the one who helps us. He's the one who teaches us. Jesus told them that the counselor, that the Father was sending to be with them and in them forever, the Holy Spirit, he would help them. I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. This counselor, this Holy Spirit would teach them all things and remind them of everything that Jesus had told them. Let's not miss the reality that these very words that we are reading right here in these verses are a fulfillment of that promise that Jesus made to his disciples in the upper room that night. John's entire gospel is a fulfillment of that promise. And so is the rest of the New Testament. When John first heard these words coming out of Jesus' mouth, right here as we are hearing them, John had no clue. Couldn't understand it, just like the rest of the disciples. But after he received the Holy Spirit, after Jesus was raised from the dead and the Spirit was given, not only did John understand these words of Jesus, but he also remembered them and he wrote them in his gospel about 60 years later. Isn't that amazing? Peter wrote about this in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. He said, above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean for us? We're not out here writing Scripture, right? It means that we can trust our Bibles. It means that we can trust what these men have written in here. Why? Because they didn't write it on their own. All Scripture is God-breathed, Old Testament and New Testament. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit so that everything written in it points us directly to Jesus Christ. The Counselor, 
the Holy Spirit whom the Father sent in Christ's name. He taught these men all things and he reminded them of everything that Christ told them and they passed these things along to us so that we might believe in this Jesus that they've written about. It also means that the same Holy Spirit who taught them, who who gave them the ability to write what they did, that same Holy Spirit now lives in us and he teaches us as we open the word of God and receive it in humility. It means that we can understand this Bible that we read because the counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father sent in Christ's name, the one who carried these men along and enabled them to speak to God, he lives in us. He lives in us as followers of Christ. There is nothing about the Father or the Son that the Spirit has no knowledge of. There's nothing about anything that the Spirit has no knowledge of. Why? Because he's God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Does that mean that everything in the Bible will be easy to understand? You know the answer to this. No, right? We may be indwelt by the Spirit of the infinite God, but we still have finite human minds, right? And yet, in 1 Corinthians 2, you should go read that this week, Paul says that because we have the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. No one knows the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. And so we who have the Spirit are able to glean a particular wisdom from the pages of Scripture that is unavailable to those who don't have the Spirit. Anyone can open the Bible and and read it and see what it says. But only those who have the Spirit are able to understand what God is revealing. It's the wisdom of the gospel that the Spirit opens our eyes to so that we can understand all that God has freely given to us in Christ. But that wisdom that we receive from the Spirit is foolishness to those who don't have the Spirit because Paul says spiritual things are spiritually discerned. That's why we'll never common sense anybody into the kingdom. Sometimes I think because we, we, we don't, remember all that the Spirit does in us and for us. We read the gospel and it makes perfect sense to us now. And we feel like it's common sense to everyone else. But the Bible says it's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's ridiculous that a man would die on a cross. Instead, Instead of trying to common sense them into the kingdom, we present them with this glorious mystery of the gospel that is, as Paul says in Colossians, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we pray as we present, as we proclaim, we pray that the Spirit who gives us understanding would also open the eyes of their heart to receive the good news of the gospel as wisdom instead of foolishness and that he might in his love and grace enable them then to love Christ instead of loving their sin and turn to him in faith and repentance. The Holy Spirit is vital if we are to receive anything that Jesus has for us. 
And that brings us to the final thing we'll see in today's passage. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit in order to give us peace. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming and he has no power over me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let's leave this place. In the upper room that night, the disciples felt anything but peace, right? In fact, it's probably more like increasing turmoil. Their hearts were troubled and fearful. This is what Jesus continues to tell them over and over. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. They felt like they were losing everything because they were losing Jesus, the Messiah, the one who they thought would bring peace to Israel by wielding a mighty sword against Rome. But Jesus reassured them that he knew what they needed. Can't you just hear him over and over in all of these words, this refrain? Trust me. Trust me. He knew what they needed and only he could provide it for him. See, the peace that Jesus was referring to is this Hebrew concept of shalom. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's found all throughout the Bible. It carries with it this idea of wholeness, of completeness, of contentment, uh, satisfaction, and rest. They used it as a greeting and as a goodbye. Here Jesus is using it as a goodbye, but when he appears to them again after the resurrection, the first thing he says to them Peace be with you. The Jews expected to find this peace with the arrival of the, of the Messianic kingdom. Listen to Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Jesus was proclaiming peace to his disciples. He was proclaiming salvation to them, but not in the way they expected. This peace would be won for them through violence, but not on a battlefield with weapons. It would come on a hillside where the Messiah would be hung on a Roman cross and die in order to bring peace between sinful humanity and the God who alone is holy. He bore our guilt and our shame as he bore the righteous wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. He was pierced because of our rebellion. Isaiah also says this in the very next chapter. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, shalom, was laid on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in triumph over sin and death and the devil so that we can be declared righteous forever in God's sight. Jesus secured our peace with God and because of that, he has given us the peace of God. My peace I give to you, he says. 
This peace comes only to those who believe in him. That's why Jesus told his disciples ahead of time so that when it happened, they would believe. Do you have this peace? You won't find it in anything that the world has to offer because the world can't give you this kind of peace. Why? The world can't give you any kind of peace because it is marred by sin and it is filled with sinners. Because we have all sinned against God. We all need peace with God. And the only way to have that peace that we all need is to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Depend on him. And that you will find peace. In verse 28, Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Now, he wasn't contradicting the claims that he'd already made about being one with the Father. God the Father is not more God than God the Son. But as God the Son, when Jesus took humanity upon himself, he laid aside some of the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. This is what Paul means in Philippians 2 when he says that Christ emptied himself. This is what Jesus will pray for in John 17. Return me to that glory that I had with you before the world existed. If the disciples loved him, they would want him to have that undiminished glory again with the Father. But all they could focus on was their own loss. Instead of rejoicing with Jesus, they were feeling sorry for themselves. Now, all of this speaks to their own inability to do what he had been telling them this entire time. Love me. Obey me. And we need to understand that their inability is our inability. That's why Jesus laid his glory aside. That's why he took on flesh and became one of us. It's why he went to the cross before he returned to the Father. Because he loved the Father, he did as the Father commanded. He lived a perfect life of obedience in our place. He died because of our disobedience. He rose to give us life and he sent his spirit to give us love for him that propels our obedience to him. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 5 that God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given to us. Why do we love, John tells us, because God first loved us. We love him with the love that he has given to us. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, the Spirit's advice to us is this, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. See how wonderful he is. Trust him. Live for him. Don't let him down. Follow him. Serve him with all your life. And because of the Spirit's ministry to us, we respond, yes. Yes. I want to do that. Empower me to do it. It's God's Spirit that works in us to give us the desire and the ability to do what pleases him because God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves, the son who love himself, er, loves himself, yes, but loves us and gave himself for us. In verse 30, Jesus told his disciples that the ruler of this world was coming. 
Yes, Jesus was crucified at the hands of the Romans and the Jews, but his crucifixion took place as part of this cosmic spiritual battle that was first revealed in Genesis 3.15 when God promised to send a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. At the cross, the serpent crushed Jesus' heel, and for three days, it looked like he had won. But as Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, the ruler of this world has no power over me. And Jesus proved that by rising from the dead on the third day. Now, after he told the, the disciples all these things, here at the end of verse 31, he said, get up, let's leave this place. Now, this phrase has puzzled scholars and, and Bible uh, teachers and, and students for many years because there's nothing in the text that indicates that they left the upper room. He still had more to say. We'll see. It's possible that they did leave, but there's, there's nothing here that, that, that shows that they got up and left. The Greek language that's used here is also used outside of the Bible in the context of war as a, as a rally cry for the troops to rise and go out to meet the enemy. As Jesus, Isaiah's Messiah, the suffering servant, as he proclaimed peace and salvation to these disciples in the upper room, it was as if he was saying to them, rise, Zion, your God reigns. Let's go and crush the serpent's head. Jesus crushed the serpent's head through his death and resurrection, and we crushed the serpent's head with Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us to love him and do what he commands. How do we explain the Holy Spirit? Maybe the most simple way is this. He is God in us. He is God in us. Those who love Jesus and keep his commands are those who, to whom he has given his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to love Jesus and keep his commands by remaining with us and in us forever, by making us the dwelling place of the Father and the Son, and by teaching us all things, reminding us all that Jesus has said. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit in order to give us his peace. So don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Your God reigns in Zion. And he's made his home in you so that you will have everything that you need to make it through this life until you finally come home to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us not just your word that is truth, but your spirit of truth not just to be with us, but to be in us forever, sealing us for the inheritance to come as a down payment, guarding us until Christ is revealed on the last day and enabling us to grow deeper in our love for Jesus and our obedience to him as we grow deeper in our dependence upon him and our confidence in him. We thank you that you have given us everything we need because you have given us yourself fully and completely, Father, Spirit, Son. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray, to grow in this love that you've given us for our Savior, that we might live lives of obedience to him 
not to earn anything, but simply to glorify the one who's given us everything. We pray this in his name. Amen.